If you were looking for someone to hire to design rockets for NASA, would you care how far she could throw a shot put? Would you even try to argue she won an Olympic gold medal in the shot put? We should hire her. NASA would say, we don't care. We want to know. Does she know math? Does she know physics? How about engineering? Or let's say you're trying to get an NFL team to draft a quarterback. Would you say to the coach, you should draft this young man. Why? He can type 90 words a minute. There's not a player in the league that can type. I don't care about that. Look, he also has an English degree. His, his grammar will be impeccable in post-game interviews. Coach can say, look, I don't know what impeccable means, but, but I don't care how good he speaks. Well, see, coach, that's the point. It's actually how well he speaks. Because it doesn't matter to me. Can he throw the ball? Is he a leadership? Does he have, can he master the playbook? See, whatever the job is determines what skills and character traits are necessary for that job. So if we were going to look at what are the three traits of a mature believer, an overcoming Christian who lives the best life possible before God to the glory of God, what would those three traits be for an engineer, math, physics, engineering, for a quarterback, arm strength, leadership, mastering the playbook, what would they be for a Christian? We're going to answer that question in just a second. We're starting a new series in Colossians called Discovering God's will. Each week we're going to go through and lay out a little bit of a greater picture of what it means to know and to follow God's will. It's based out of the Colossians chapter 1 and this week we're looking at God's will and determining who we should become, who we are. As uh, How many of you have ever been a parent or a coach? A lot of you, okay, you know this, or you've probably had a parent or had a coach. A good parent and a good coach affirms what they want more of. That's one of the best reinforcing things you can do. You see a little bit of something, you say, I want more of that. Keep doing that. It's exactly what Paul is doing to the Colossians to affirm what they are to become to fulfill God's will. So we're going to pick up with verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. Here's what Paul says. We always thank God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So the first slice of God's will, what kind of people does he want us to become? And Paul affirms it here. It's people of faith, people of love, and people of hope. Now, I've, I can feel some people just immediately zoning out. Okay, I got it. I understand. But here's the thing. As I have studied it this week, I've gotten so excited. Because the way that Paul pours spiritual understanding and wisdom and the things of Christ into these words, they mean almost the opposite of how the man on the street or the woman in the street interprets them. And when I got done going through these words, I just found myself saying, Lord, please, this is the kind of man I want to become. On the day I die, if somebody could say, these are the three things that marked his life, and my prayer is that you'll hear this, and you'll say, yeah, this is who I want to become. This is God's will for me, but it's also my will for me. At the end of my life, these are the three words that will describe who I am. Now, I love this approach because legalism focuses us 
on what we don't do. And I kind of grew up with that brand of Christianity. A Christian doesn't look at this, doesn't say that, doesn't go there, doesn't do this. But this completely looks at it differently and says, no, God's will isn't about not what we do. It's about who we are. So let's look at these things, faith, love, and hope. The first word Paul uses is faith. In the Greek, it's pistis. That's what it means. And the reason I say that it's so different from how the man on the street thinks of it, the man or woman on the street thinks faith means believing in something. It's not at all what Paul is talking about. Faith, as Paul describes it here, what it means in Scripture, isn't just believing, it's a commitment. It is a total reorientation of who I am, my, I be, my being, my identity, and my purpose around what Christ has done for me. What Christ has done for me, what Christ has done for you, should define us and direct us. Vincent Donovan was a missionary in Kenya. He was working with a Messiah elder to try to translate the Bible into their language. You know, and sometimes God can get a new believer like this Messiah elder, and he pours spiritual understanding and wisdom into him, and they just get it. And this Messiah elder did, because when Donovan was trying to look for the right word to translate faith into their language, he chose a word, and the elder was vehemently said, no, that, that means agree to. That's not biblical faith. He goes, that's the faith you would use if you're describing a white trophy hunter. I said, what do you mean? He goes, a white trophy hunter comes into our country and he hunts the prey like this. He uses his right eye and his left finger. That's all that's involved. His right eye and his left finger and he brings down the prey. He goes, faith, as Paul describes it in the Bible, is like a lion hunting his prey. This is a brilliant description from this Messiah elder. Here's what he said. Speaking of the lion, his nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck of the, with the front paw. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arm, pulls it to himself, and makes it part of himself. That's a polite way of saying he's eating it. This is the way the lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith, pistis, is. It involves our entire being. A Christian going after the will of God isn't like a trophy hunter, a little bit of our body. Everything we have is involved in it. Now notice this. Also when a lion is going after its prey, it forgets everything else. It doesn't care how hot it is. It doesn't care how its friends think about it. It is focused on, am I going to bring down that prey? And there's that truth of us when we become people of faith that we're focused on what matters. What does this mean? Before I am a male, before I am a Caucasian, before I am even a husband, a father, an American, a Democrat, Republican, or a Libertarian, if I am in Christ, I am a Christian. That's what defines me. And it's the end of identity politics that is ripping us apart today. I'm not going to let anybody put me in a class less than what God calls me. God says I'm in Christ. That's what defines me above everything else. That's what directs me above everything else. The fact that I am in Christ. If you are here today and in Christ, don't let somebody put you in a smaller box. 
Don't let somebody define you or dismiss you because you're in a smaller box. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of God. You are a bearer of the Holy Spirit. You inherit God's great promises. That's the number one identity that defines and directs you. Don't be a trophy hunter who goes after the prey with one eye and a finger. Be a lion. See, faith, as Paul describes it, isn't, oh, I believe and then I just go on. It's what we live for. Jesus tried to get this across to the disciples early on in his ministry. They found him. Remember what Jesus said in John 4, 34. My food, he said, is to do the will of him who sent me. It nourishes me. It's what I'm all about. So a person of faith is a person whose confidence, purpose in life is centered around Christ. God's will is that you and me become a person just like that. How do we get there? We remember what Christ has done for us. We define ourselves by what Christ has done for us. The second thing that Paul affirms is that we're to become people of love. A lot of you here, if you've been in church for a while, you know this word agape in the Greek. That's the form of love that he's using. And just as we misunderstand faith as meaning belief instead of commitment, man or woman on the street thinks of love as doing nice things for people you like. Do you love him? Do you love her? It's I'm going to do nice things because I really like this person. Agape instead is a practical expression of care and concern. It means you want the best for people. It means that you will sacrifice for them. It, it means that you will go out of your way to bless them. It means you will never want to harm someone. So in a positive sense, it's why we give money to people we don't even know. Sometimes on the other side of the world. It's why we enjoy encouraging people and blessing people and listening to people that no one else wants to pay attention to. In a negative sense, it means we don't harm, we don't gossip, we don't tear down, we don't go on social media to make people feel small, but to lift people up. We would never intentionally harm, rob, or hurt someone. It means we want the best. There was a soldier in World War I who came in from the front lines and he saw this nurse taking care of soldiers. One had been out on the front lines for quite a while. He'd been wounded many hours before. So the wounds had started to fester. Gangrene had set in. And it was disgusting. It was filled with pus. It was smelly. It was awful. And the soldier looked at this nurse cleaning out this wound and he said to her, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the nurse said, neither would I. You couldn't pay me enough to clean out this wound. But she wasn't doing it for a million dollars. As a Christian, she was doing it for love. That's what agape means. It's what Jesus said. He defines agape when he says, a new commandment I give to you. This was at the Last Supper. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's what defines agape love. And so in Matthew 25, the parable of sheep and the goats, he says that love isn't having a party for your friends because you feel good about them. In fact, love is going out to the prisoners and the lost and the hungry and the hurting and doing things for people that may not even know you, that may never pay you back. It's why Hebrews says that we should entertain strangers because in doing so, some have entertained angels. Unaware. It's why Mother Teresa gave her life 
to really the disgusting work of helping lepers in Calcutta. Another grotesque disease, highly contagious. But she said in doing that, she felt like she was ministering to Jesus. You couldn't pay her to do it, but love motivated her to do it. So love is putting ourselves in a place to lift up others. Bruce Waltke wrote a wonderful commentary in the book of Proverbs. If you're studying the book of Proverbs, get Bruce Waltke's commentary. And in it, he describes the difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man. It is the Old Testament equivalent of agape love. And I love this quote. Here's what Waltke says. The righteous man disadvantages himself for the sake of others, while the unrighteous man disadvantages others for the sake of himself. You could say that's what a loving person do. A loving person disadvantages himself or herself for the sake of others. The person who doesn't love disadvantages others for the sake of himself or herself. Where do we fall on that spectrum? How would people describe us? Because the world's view is we do kind things to people we like. That's love. In the biblical view... We do kind things to people who might not even like us, who might even resent it. Boy, if you feel taken for granted, if you feel like your love isn't returned, you've got to hear this from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. He said this, I will gladly spend myself and all I have for you. That's love. Everything I have, everything I am, I'm pouring it out for you. But what, how do they respond? Even though... Seems like the more I love you, the less you love me. Have you ever been in a relationship like that? It could be with your parents if they're not believers. It could be with your kids. It could be with friends. You're pouring yourself out. It seems like the more you pour yourself out, the less they love you. But agape love means we keep doing that. Sarah works in a nursing home, has for 10 years. She combs a resident's hair pushes their wheelchairs to play bingo, brings in the food. Ten years she's been a tireless servant. Not once has a resident handed her a tip or money. Not once has she asked them to pay her. Why? The nursing home pays her. The residents often don't even know she's there. She gets paid from the nursing home. For a Christian, we don't expect payment from those we're actually serving. Our Heavenly Father says, I'm going to pay you. You're motivated by what I'll give you, not what the people you love give you. That's not a love that I see anybody in the world talks about. So what is God's will for us? It's to become people who love with agape love. We serve others. We would never harm others. God says become someone just like that. The third word that Paul uses is hope. In Greek, it's elpis. Again, faith in the world is seen as a belief, not a commitment. Love is seen as an emotion that you have for somebody you like rather than a care and concern policy. Hope is seen in the world as having an expectation of something you're not sure is really going to happen. I, I hope I get an A. I, I hope I get the job. Elpis, biblical hope, is the assurance of something that is going to happen that motivates how you act today. You don't know if you're going to get an A. You don't know if you're going to get a job. But biblical hope is, I know this is certain. This will happen. And because this will happen in the future, it's going to impact how I act today. 
It already exists. We see this from verse 5. Paul says this, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. It's not you might get it. It's already purchased. It's set aside. You just have to get there. And then that motivates us how we act today. We're energized by what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. God has set aside a great inheritance for us. That's our joy. That's what we look forward to. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be disappointments. It might cost us everything we have on this earth. But because the promise of that inheritance is so great. We keep doing what God has called us to do. Gregory the Great from the 6th century said this. Hope fixes our hearts so steadfastly upon the joys of heaven. That we are insensible to the miseries of this life. I want to read that again. I think it's a great quote. Hope fixes our hearts so steadfastly upon the joys of heaven that we're insensible to the miseries of this life. Now this point gets me nervous because when I've written about this, I've had editors come back to me from my publisher and say, Gary, you're wasting your time doing a chapter on hope in heaven. I said it goes over the heads of younger people. They think it's old time religion. It's pie in the sky. It just doesn't motivate them. They want to know what's going on now. But, but I'm praying that God will get this through because I think this is an essential component to be an overcoming, obedient Christian. What it means to hope is that I don't just look at the path I'm traveling on. That's where most people look today. How do I feel about the way things are going? My relationships, my finances, my health, my happiness. The path is good. I'm going to keep walking. It hope says, I don't just look at the path. I look at the destination. That matters more to me. So let's say you have two paths you can take today. One path, it's the broad path. A lot of people are taking it. You're going through a nice meadow and a forest. You've got some bubbling brooks. There's a slight breeze. A river alongside you which keeps it cool. You've got birds singing. Mountains in the background that you can look at. And every mile and a half, two miles, there's a food station where people are handing out bottles of water and treats. And they're saying, good job. You're doing great. This is wonderful. Yes, you're on the right path. This is fantastic. But at the end of that trail, you're walking into a place of torture until the day you die. Now there's another path. It doesn't look so good. That's why not too many people are on it. It goes through, not through a meadow. It goes through a desert. There aren't birds. There's mosquitoes. And the sun's beating down on you. And there's no shade. And nobody's handing you water or food. In fact, they're making fun of you. Are you an idiot? Why aren't you on that other trail? It's so stupid. You're ignorant to be on this trail. You're a fool to be on this trail. You're throwing your life away. But at the end of that trail... Is a 50-acre estate in Oahu that is yours to enjoy for the rest of your life. But most people today, I want to say especially young people, but I think middle-aged and older people as well, they're focused on the path. They, they don't want to think about the destination. And can I be honest? We're talking about God's will over the next, sec next several weeks. Let me tell you Satan's will for you. Satan's will is to get you to focus only on the path you're walking, not the destination of where it leads. 
Biblical hope says, no, don't look at how it feels right now. Look at the direction you're going. Say, no, 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 no. This is a nice path. See, it's comfortable. People support you. People love you on this path. You would be a fool to leave this path. But hope says, I don't look at the path. I look at the destination. That's what directs me. Trying to be a mature Christian without hope is trying to be a NASA scientist who doesn't understand physics or engineering or an NFL quarterback who can't throw the ball. It doesn't work. You cannot be a strong Christian. We cannot be obedient Christians without hope. See, hope keeps us from fighting battles that don't matter because we're focused on the path. I call it, we're painting houses that are on fire. That should be a sermon in itself, and it kills me. I can only mention it, but just think about it. We spend most of our time focusing on the path, not the destination. So we are literally painting houses in our life that are on fire. They don't matter. They're going to burn anyway, but that's our focus. We're just going to tidy them up, and it looks silly in the light of heaven. Hope also helps me to say no to lesser things as I wait for superior blessings What I love about this, hope means I can't be bought. The world can throw fame at you. It can throw money. It can throw acclaim and enthusiasm. But you say, I've got something better. I know where I'm headed. And what you're offering is pennies to millions. I'm not going to accept it. And then hope is what makes us zealous for God. If you were to show up at work tomorrow and your boss were to pull you aside and said, look, Uh, We're really facing some tough times. I need you to start working 60 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. But I also want you to know we can't pay you anymore. You you mean you're going to pay me later? No, we're never going to pay you. We're never going to be able to afford to pay you. But I'm just asking you to work longer hours without any more pay. How many of you are going to stay there for 60 hours that week? But then let's say tomorrow a boss comes in. Hey, we got a great deal. It's going good. I'm going to have to ask you to up your hours from 40 to 60, but after three months, we've already got it in the bank. We're going to divide the five of us $1 billion. You think you might work those 60 hours with a little bit of joy? I bet you would. Hope is like that. It tells us, I will work zealously because I know it is set aside. It's in the bank. It is a worthy investment of my life. Why do Christians fail? They lose their hope. God doesn't respond quickly enough to their immediate concerns. But God's will is for us to be people of hope, sustained by hope. We remind ourselves of what Christ says he will do so we can face difficulties today. So let's put this together. What is God's will for us? What kind of people does he want us to become? He wants us to remember what Christ has done what makes, which makes us people of faith. He wants us to remember what Christ will do, which makes us people of hope. And so he wants us to give our lives over to practical expressions of care and concern, which makes us people of love. How do you know the gospel has taken root in your life or the life of someone you love? It's a person of faith, of hope, and love. Nabeen grew up in the Himalayas, it's the mountains, terrible climate, I mean, drastic, violent climate, very poor, 
Food is hard to come by. Medicine is an, an afterthought. When David Platt was traveling through there, he came across a man whose eyeball had literally fallen out. He'd gotten an infection in the U.S. They'd give him a few antibiotics, he'd be fine, but the infection kept eating its way through. He lost his eye. David could see right into his skull. That's the world that Nabeen grew up in. He was a young boy. His mom died when he was young, and his dad became very angry, and he took it out on Nabeen. Nabeen became his punching bag. His father remarried another woman who was a widow. She had kids of her own. She resented Nabeen's presence because she didn't want to share what little they had with him. And his father took out his anger on Nabeen even more. And so he started to get sticks into the fire till they were red hot. And he would whack Nabeen in the back. If you were to look at Nabeen's back today without a shirt, you would see the marks of that abuse. After months of this, Nabeen just said... I'd rather take my chances in the Himalayas by myself than stay in an abusive environment like this. So he took off. Oh, he was seven years old. A seven-year-old boy said, I'm going to try it on my own in the Himalayas rather than stay in this home. His father, out of spite, I don't know, chased him down, found him about three days later, he didn't weigh much because they didn't eat much. Grabs him by the ankles and bangs him against the rocks. Drags him home. A stepmom says, no way is that boy staying in my house. They literally chained him to a stake in their barn. And that's where he lived every day. Winter, summer, fall. Months later, a young man named Aaron, a solid Christian who came to bring the gospel to the Himalayas, tried to bring in some education, improve medical care, was hiking around. It was getting dark. And so he stopped at Nabeen's father's house. He knocked on the door and he said, look, I, I, I don't have any place to stay. Do you mind if I spend the night here? He said, we don't have any room in the house, but you're welcome to put your sleeping bag in the barn. It was now dark, so he goes into the barn, drops his backpack, lays out his sleeping bag, and it's about to jump in it when he heard something rustle. Yeah, well, I'm in a barn. It's an animal. But I want to know what kind of animal it is. So he turns on his flashlight. He's looking into eight-year-old Nabeen's eyes. A boy chained to a stake who hasn't showered, has hardly been fed. Next several days, he goes everywhere he can to find a new place. He finally gets him in a Christian school where Nabeen is educated. He becomes a believer. He hears what Christ has done for him. He believes what Christ will do for him. And it changed his life. As he became older, he started to travel with Aaron to be his translator. And when he was 20 years old, he's this strong young man, a man of faith, traveling around the Himalayas. And one day, he sees coming down the mountain, his father carrying one of his stepchildren. The child was close to death. The father was in a panic. He had to bring the boy down to the village or he would certainly die. But you don't leave a woman and your young kids up in the mountains at this time of year. And he pleaded with Nabeen, please would you go back up and take care of your stepmom and take care of the kids. I don't think they can make it without you. We're reading... We're hearing, we're seeing how a lot of 20-somethings are responding to things in this world today, aren't we? Couldn't you imagine the bean getting angry? How 
dare you ask me to go up that mountain to a woman that said I couldn't stay in the house. I had to be chained to a stake. And you want to see the scars on my back? And you're asking me to put my life on hold to go up there and care for her and her kids? Nobody would be surprised if he said that. I don't know that anybody could fault him if he said that. But he didn't say that. Because he believed in what Christ had done for him. He believed in what Christ said he would be received. And so he said, I'm going to do practical care and concern. Not for somebody I like, but for somebody who never liked me. He went up there for three months. And he cared for that woman. And he cared for their kids until the dad got back. Why would he do that? He was a person of faith. He was a person of hope. And he became person of love we see the kinds of lives we can choose today and the question is God's will for you this morning is what kind of person do you want to become and so what I've done this week is I've looked where am I strong where am I weak maybe you're weak in being a person of faith you've you've you, you know that Jesus died for you but it doesn't define you you're like the white trophy hunter. You've given God your right eye and your left trigger finger, but I'm going to go on my life as if what Jesus did for me didn't really matter. Or maybe you're weak with hope. You're so frustrated about the path you're on. It's so disappointing. It's so unpleasant. You've forgotten what's at the end. You've forgotten all that Jesus said. Here I am. Here's what I'm going to give you. You don't think about that at all. And so you are motivated by bitterness. Not anticipation. Maybe you got both. Maybe you know what Christ did for you. Maybe you know what Christ said you'll get. But you've forgotten how it's supposed to translate into love. You're good to people you like. You're good to people who like you. But not to those that Jesus say love is to be poured out on. God's will for us is to be all three. People of faith, people of hope, and people of love.